JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. He covers the Colts for The Athletic, and his name is Zach Kiefer, and he joins us now on the ride with JMV. Um, do you have any time at all, Zach, with everything that you're doing down there and, and writing and uh, all the microphones sticking in all of the people's faces? Do you have any time for golf at all down there or no? You know, Derek, I'm glad you asked, because that's the most important part of this trip. Um, <laughs> Monday and Tuesday is like all day from – 6 a.m. to midnight, you're, you know, I mean, if anyone out there knows, you, you sit down with Jim Mercer, it's a long conversation. It's a lot of transcribing. So after a long couple of days where you don't even really get a chance to breathe, you don't even really get to enjoy the sunshine, and it is really nice here, I, I might sneak out tomorrow if I get my work done in time. Don't tell my wife, though, because she probably expects me home a little bit earlier. <laughs> I knew you'd find time. I knew you were a big golf guy. Um, can you tell me – where this team is mindset-wise because the Colts seem to be in this weird spot where Jim Irsay is obviously anxious to win again, right? That's his number one priority. He wants to win. But he's also letting his general manager get another shot at a head coach with Shane Steichen and and a third real shot at a quarterback here with whoever it's going to be next. And he's talking about building things up. So which is it here? Because I feel like in the past year, Irsay has made a mix of patient and calculated decisions, but also impatient and rash decisions. Yeah, that's a really good question because I think they're trying to play it both ways, right? They're trying to have both sides of the coin. We sat with Jim Mersey at his very, very elegant golf side tweet last night overlooking the desert, and we had a really long talk, about an hour, about where this team is at, about where it's going, and about the lessons of the last couple of years. And that was one of the questions I asked was, what the hell went wrong, right? And, and his hands were dirty, and Chris Ballard's hands were dirty, and Frank Reich and all that. We don't need to look back, but where is this team at right now? I don't know. I think they're resetting. He, he preached patience a lot last night. Ursay did. And they're going to draft this quarterback very much with Shane Steichen in mind. They're going to draft the quarterback that Shane wants, I believe. And they're going to build around that. Now, where does that lead Chris Ballard? And that's what I'm writing about tomorrow for the Athletic because for years, the response we would get from Jim Irsay was, look, I love Chris. I think he's great. He's going to be here for a long time. That was not the response we got last night. Now, he still likes Chris. He still believes in him. He's going to let him pick this quarterback. But the response was, look, if you're a coach or general manager, you need to produce. And Chris is seven games under 500. He's won one playoff game and no division titles. And Chris admitted after the season last year, he fired himself 50 times. So he knows how bad it got. The problem is, when they've been in this situation before, they've had that, that golden nugget at the top of the draft, right? The real no-brainers, right? And I don't need to go into all that. This is so much different. This is so much harder 
because you're going to get the third quarterback at best, at best, and they're not going to be a situation where they're going to win a lot next year. I really don't think they're going to win. I think they know that. Jim Irsay is trying to say that they're going to try and win next year. He's trying to spin that. He's trying to sell hope. It's just hard for me to see that. It's really hard for me to see that. They do have talent, right? He talked about Shaq Leonard coming back. He talked about Jonathan Taylor getting that ankle healthy, right? They have talent. They're not devoid of talent. There's certainly teams with less talent around the league. But if you look at that one position that they don't have solved, it's really hard to see this team really winning big in 2023. Yeah, and I respect Chris Ballard's stance, and and I agree with his stance, Zach, that you don't want to force it and you want to find the right guy, but I think there's a difference between being cautious and being scared. If you're just sitting around waiting for, like, the perfect quarterback prospect to fall into your lap, like, that doesn't exist. Josh Allen wasn't that. Uh, Patrick Mahomes wasn't that. You know, any of these guys. Justin Herbert wasn't that. Like, there were there were serious questions about all of those guys, and, and that's kind of what I'm concerned with, with with Boward and just this approach that he's taking here. I, I think he's waiting for a perfect situation that's just – it's not going to happen. You know what their biggest regret is, Derek? And I'm not breaking any news here. Their biggest regret is not drafting one in 2021. Yeah. That's when they had their opportunity. But they sent a first-round pick to Philadelphia. They traded for Carson Wentz. That's their biggest regret of those that are still here, the decision makers. That's their, that, that was their chance to really move off from Phillip Rivers after his retirement and start over and, and, and do what Jim Mercer really wants to do, right? He wants to grow his own. And he really wants that quarterback on a rookie contract so he can maneuver around him and build up because they're going to have to have pieces around this guy because this guy's not going to come in and, and go to the Pro Bowl right away like Andrew Luck did in 2012. So I see what you're saying. You can't just sit on the sidelines forever. Ballard is, is very judicious. He's not going to take a risk he doesn't like. He's, now, he's done, he's done that before. He, he's made plays at bigger positions that people often overlook. Like the move for Buckner was a big trade. They signed Rivers. They paid him a lot. The move for Rat Ryan, the move for Phillip Rivers. I mean, those were significant franchise quarterback moves, right? But you can't sit on the sidelines that long at quarterback. You're going to have to take your shot. None of these guys are going to be perfect. He's not going to want to be boxed in. He's not going to want to be forced to make a pick. But it's time, man. It's time to sit on, to stop sitting on the sidelines. And the only other thing I add is if they take one this year, that doesn't mean they wouldn't consider taking one next year. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, if, if you step up into the box and then you swing and miss, you just step up and take another swing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. uh, you're not doomed as a franchise forever if you miss. You know, you guys miss. One, right? yeah. You've got to get one guy. And so, I, you know, you, you, can't, you can't hit a home run if you don't swing. And I, I think that's kind of the problem that, that I approached there with, with the Colts at all. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that Ursay talked about in hindsight in, in 21, and, and he's claiming that he wanted it to be uh, – wanted to go young there. It, it, it kind of bothers me, Zach. Look, I, I like Ursay. I know you like Ursay. I, I think he's a good owner because I think he wants to win. So for all his, you know, Jim Ursay-ness, uh, I, I've always liked Jim Ursay, but – I don't like the cop out of well. I wanted to do this, but I was talked out yep. of it. Look, man, you're the owner, so yep. y- you're the pilot. Y- you decide where the plane flies. So I don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, him tr- keep trying to pin that on somebody else or on Reich. Um, it bothers me, and, and I hope, hopefully, maybe since this owners' meeting, we're going to move on from that permanently. Hey, man, I didn't even ask about it. If, if yeah. that tells you anything, I didn't even ask about it. But I have the same. I have the same thought. And, it, and I went back and I was at those press conferences when he was selling Carson Wentz. Mm-hmm. He was selling the hope that Carson Wentz brought, and he was selling the fact that they thought he would be here for five or six years. But if you go back, you can understand all the moves they made. You really can. Like bringing Rivers in for one year, going to get Carson because Frank believed in Carson and he thought he could change him, and 
and they had had a lot of success together. And also, you know, he was supposed to be a guy that solved that problem for the next couple of years while you looked in the draft for the next guy. And then last year they got out of the Carson problem and then got Matt Ryan thinking they had removed the problem and, and solved the issue. And they didn't. So they've swung twice in a row, missed twice in a row, and they're done with the veteran route. They're absolutely done with it. I'm surprised you haven't asked me about Lamar Jackson yet. I just don't see it happening. I just don't see it happening. And if you disagree, you can read what Ursay said in my story that was posted this morning. I think your first answer kind of summed up, because I was prepared to ask you about that, Zach, but I think your first answer about roster building and, and how they're approaching this pretty much answered that. I mean, everything that the Colts have done so far this offseason points to them not pursuing Lamar Jackson, right? Yeah, there's just there's not a lot of teams looking at him right now. And the money is a huge factor. The injury is a factor. And I think, honestly, and this is just me speaking, I think the way he's handled this has not helped it. And I know for a fact that him not having an agent has made this very difficult for the Ravens and obviously the other teams that possibly would consider it. But Jim Irsay said point blank last night, I will not give out guaranteed contracts. I do not believe in that at all, at all. He said it twice. And maybe Lamar doesn't need a guaranteed contract. Maybe he needs a little bit less than fully guaranteed. Ursay still doesn't want to have a situation where his quarterback is taking up $50 million of the cap, preventing them from piecing together the other pieces of the roster that they need. And let's be honest, this roster is flawed. We saw their issues last year. They need to address some issues. And it just does I, I understand they're going to keep their options open, and there's no reason not to. There's no reason not to have a conversation but I would say the odds are very, very long that that is an ultimate, and that's the outcome at this, at the end of this. Zach Kiever is our guest. He covers the Colts for the Athletic. He joins us here on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. If we're to assume, and, and this is a really tough question, Zach, because we don't really know Shane Steichen yet, and, and looking at who he's worked with, he's worked with a cornucopia of different starting quarterbacks, but if, if we're to assume that it's either Levis or Richardson with the fourth pick, who do you think is the best Who's the best fit for what everyone wants? Just given what we know about Ursay, given what we know about Boward, and given what we know so far in, in the infancy of the coaching tenure of Shane Steichen? Yeah, that's a really good question. I got a little bit, little bit of info on that this past week. I went down to Kentucky, watched Will Levis throw. I went down to Ohio State, watched C.J. Stroud throw. I think we all know C.J. Stroud's not going to be there. Yeah. Boy, that would be surprising. But to answer your question, here's what my gut tells me. And if I'm wrong, I'll hop on on April 28th and you guys can kill me. I think it's Levis. I keep going back to what Steichen said at the Combine. He's looking for a guy that's obsessed, obsessed with football. And I hear a lot about Will Levis in that regard. Now, there are certainly flaws, right? The decisions, the tape, screams third-round pick sometimes and first-round pick others. You want that consistency. He's got the big arm. He's not super accurate. But I feel like that's a guy they can mold. I feel like Jalen Hurst took a huge step in terms of accuracy over the last two years. That was Steichen. That was Steichen. He's talked about how mechanics can improve accuracy. But the one thing you can't fake is that obsession with the game. And I'm not saying Richardson isn't obsessed, but his tape does not speak to first-round ability. He's better as a prospect right now than he is quarterback. And he only started 13 games at Florida – and I, I promise if you guys out there, you go watch this tape, you go watch Richardson's tape, it will make you uneasy because there are times when he doesn't look like he's a top two pick. And then you watch him at the combine, the underwear Olympics, and he's a stud. He's maybe the most physically gifted quarterback in NFL history as a prospect. But in terms of needing that guy that's obsessed with the game and that's going to be in there, 
That's the vibe I got from Will Levis. I just feel like he's going to be all in right away, that obsessive quality that Steichen wants. Like he said, there was a point early with Jalen Hurts that he was like, this guy is so into football, so obsessed with it, that there's just no way he fails. And remember, Hurts was a second-round pick, and, and we'll talk about Will Levis possibly at four. So as of right now, I feel like that's the lean based on what I've heard from Steichen and Ballard. But it'll be Ballard's call, but I think Steichen's going to have a heavy say in this one. Last thing here, Zach, with the Colts moving on from Frank Reich, I think in the middle of last year you thought, oh, man, are they also going to move on from Chris Boward? And ultimately, obviously, they chose not to move on from Chris Boward. But the fact that they're hiring a new head coach in Shane Steich and they're going to have a new quarterback for all intents and purposes you know, next year, even if it's Gardner Minshew, will technically be a new quarterback. Um, right. Are we locked into Chris Boward being the general manager of this team through 2024? But the decision just to bring him back for next year? No. It's funny you ask that. Frank Reich literally just walked right past me. So, uh, <laughs> good thing I had to step outside. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, no, I had, a, I had a good chat with Frank last night. Good to catch up with him. He seems really happy in Carolina. But to answer your question, that's exactly what I'm writing about right now. Ursay's answer was different, and that tells me something. He backed Chris Ballard through the, through the mess that was last year. Right? It was an absolute yeah. disaster. And Ursay was guilty, and Ballard was guilty, and the coaches were guilty, including Reich. They all had their hands dirty in that disaster. But by backing Ballard, he gave him complete autonomy with the coaching search. Ballard ran the coaching search and picked the coach, and Ballard is going to pick the quarterback. Make no mistake, unless Ursay has a huge problem out of nowhere, he's not going to step in and override them. So that tells me he's allowing Chris to fix the mistakes that he's made, right, to clean up the mess that he's made. But here's what Ursay wants to see. He wants to see proof. Now, he doesn't have a number in mind in terms of wins. He doesn't need them to go 500. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need this that, to play that game. But he says, you know when you know. You know when you know. He knew in 1998, the Colts were 3-13. They lost a bunch of close games late. He knew that they – obviously, they had Peyton. He knew they were about to turn the corner. Now, it's not the same situation. There's no Peyton Manning in this draft. And even if there was, Colts ain't getting them. But he wants to see something in terms of forward progress. He wants to see something that he can believe in in terms of Chris Ballard fixing this. And I think that's what it's going to come down to. Ballard's under contract. We know that doesn't matter a whole lot with Jim Irsay. He will pay that money if he has to. Um, but I think that's going to, what it's going to come down to. And Irsay said last night it's a gut feeling. And only one man can make that decision, and, and that's Jim Irsay. At Z Kiefer on Twitter and the Athletic app, if you're not already a subscriber, uh, they're running the one dollar deal, which is awesome, and they're they're just it, it's the best content that there is. And you can look at the Colts, you can look at anything you want on the Athletic app with a subscription. Thanks so much, Zach, and I hope you do uh, fit in some of that uh, to the golf, and I hope Kelsey forgives you for it. <laughs> she probably won't, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Thanks, man. Have a good one. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I'm Derek Schultz. I am super geeked to talk about this next person and, and have him on the show because he is always super geeked to talk about college hoops. 
I don't think there's anyone more excited than John Fanta, a college hoops analyst for Fox Sports in the field of 68 when it comes to college basketball in general, but also the Final Four. He's going to be down in Houston. And, John, are you just ready to sprint downstairs Saturday morning and rip open that FAU and San Diego State box under the tree or what? (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Derek. I can't wait. I'm excited. And I think that this Final Four should be acknowledged for what it is, a direct reflection of the current state of college basketball, which can deliver something that college football cannot and something that other sports would like to deliver from time to time. Jim Laranega, the Miami head coach, said it best yesterday. He goes, look, should we have this type of Final Four every year? I love this, Derek, because Laranega is so real. He's so real that he's a participating coach in the Final Four that said this. He goes, should we have a Final Four like this every year? He goes, probably not. He's like, no, we, we probably shouldn't because fans identify with certain programs. But, but the madness viewership, interest, thought process, buzz, when you're filling out a bracket next year, I guarantee you, you're going to be more inclined to pick somebody random to pick somebody crazy because we've now reached the point where in college hoops, the madness doesn't just stop after one weekend. It can continue. Teams can pull it off. They can, they're not just a one hit wonder. They could win four games in a row and not for nothing. We don't have a team that was in the last four in, in this final four. We don't have a double digit seed in this final four. We have a team that came from an 8-9 game. Guess what? Carolina did that last year. Yep. Florida Atlantic's 35-3. and San Diego State's 31-6. and UConn started the season 14-0, and and Miami went to the Elite Eight a year ago. These programs all deserve to be there, and it's going to be interesting in Houston to see how it plays out. But one thing's for certain. The way this tournament's gone, expect the unexpected. Don't just put chalk up as to who you think's going to win it all. I, I think that would be speaking too soon. Yeah, I was going to say, because UConn is a pretty heavy favorite, and if anything, what we've seen so far says that maybe no one should be the heavy favorite. But I I did want to talk about the Huskies, John, because I know the Big East is, uh, you know, you're obviously a national analyst now, but that's kind of where you came up. And right before Christmas, they came out here to Indy, and they thrashed Butler. Now, a lot of teams thrashed Butler this year, but they were 12-0 at that point. I, I think they were number three in the polls, if I'm not mistaken. And then over the next month, they lost six of eight. They had a, a five and six start in Big East conference play. What changed for UConn after that? Because this now, what we're seeing, seems like the team that they were destined to be in November and December. Yeah, I think what changed is they figured out what they needed to do with Andre Jackson. So during their slump, Jackson, the junior, dynamic six foot seven wing. He was really struggling to to find a role on the offensive end of the floor, Derek. I mean, we're talking about a guy that was in his own head with his jump shot. Uh, He would attempt to drive the lane. It would be a charging foul. So the UConn staff sort of went back into the war room and said, all right, how do we positionally put this guy at a place on the floor that allows him to not be uncomfortable with his game? Well, guess what they did? They said, you know what, we're going to put him on the baseline." And we're going to have him flash in. Or if he gets the ball, he'll get it at the elbow and he'll make a play for somebody else. Because he is big. He's an imposing figure at six foot seven. He's long. So they changed up his role. And by changing up his role, they uncovered an asset to the team that they had not had. 
One of the biggest questions with this Connecticut team was point guard play entering the year. One of the biggest questions with Purdue was point guard play entering the year. They answered that for the first three, four months of the season, and then teams caught up with them. They really failed to adapt, to be candidly honest. UConn did adapt. UConn adapted because I think Hurley and staff acknowledged the fact that the guy that they had playing point guard, Tristan Newton, is good. He's having a good year. But he's not otherworldly great. He's not, he's not a point guard, a national championship point guard, the point guards that you kind of put in that class. He's a good point guard. So, okay, how do we find another playmaker? They found it in the form of Jackson. In the last two games, he has totaled 17 assists. Wow. He's a six foot seven wing. He's creating for people. He's setting up. He's not setting up like Jordan Hawkins catch and shoot three. So for the people out there who are like, well, you got to make shots to get assists. No, right now, Derek, what's happening is this guy's getting the ball inside the arc. He's driving. People are coming to him, and he is drawing those defenders and passing it off to Sonogo or Klingon or Alex Caravan, and they are scoring easy baskets. UConn right now has a point wing, and he is playing like a pro. What are the – when you look at – I don't want to crown them before it happens, John, because there, there's still two games to play here. But now that they're back in the Final Four again, and they've had six Final Fours now in the last quarter century, right? Four titles on there with the potential for a fifth. We've got this rarefied era of blue bloods in the sport, right? Carolina, Kentucky, Duke, Kansas, throw UCLA in there as well. And that's like an untouchable group, I feel like, like those five. But now does UConn have enough of a sample size here when you're talking 25, 30 years? Have they ascended to the point where they're firmly near the top of that next tier, like Louisville and, you know, I I would love to still put Indiana. I don't know if people think of Indiana in that same breath anymore, but like that that grouping of teams from six to ten. So here's the deal. If Connecticut wins the national championship on Monday night, they will have five national championships under three different head coaches since 1999. Nobody else in college basketball would possess more than three, which means, and that being Carolina, which means they would own a quarter century. They would own a quarter century of the sport with the five out of 25. So, in my opinion, if they win this national championship, they absolutely are on the top of the class two. And I think it's respectable to say that they're in class yeah. one in the A class if they win this championship. Because you're talking about five, five over the course of a quarter century. And here's why it's different this time they're in the Big East, they're in. The, the mighty Big East, this traditional league, they're part of the fabric of it. Uh, they're in a league that's gotten better here in March from a brand perspective. Rick Pitino at St. Don's makes it feel like the 80s again. Ed Coley making this villainous move from Providence to Georgetown. That drives up the interest. It drives up attention. Marquette's really, really good. Xavier's really, really good. Creighton keeps tasting these deep tournament runs under Greg McDermott. Like, tell me why this league can't be one in college basketball in, in a year or two based on what it's done with the upgrade of programs that have been near the bottom of it. Unfortunately, Butler right now is 10th or 11th in this league. They just are. But the fact is, 
UConn being in this Northeast Corridor-based league where they own Connecticut, but they own the New York area. They do have a great fan base. They are a traditional brand. This is how you do it. When you can climb the mountaintop and win a national championship after returning to this league, you can remind everybody that they're talking about Tobacco Road and they're talking about Allen Fieldhouse and they're talking about UCLA. UConn can belong in that class because they are a state school. They have a rich fan base. They have a rich tradition of NBA players. And this run has served as their arrival back to college basketball's top map. And whereas they were going to the American 10 years ago when they last won it, instead here, Connecticut is in a league that allows them to be on big broadcast TV and get big-time exposure where they can just parlay it into more. You mentioned those upgrades for some of the teams that were occupying the same tier as Butler lately in the Big East, like St. John's and Georgetown with their coaching staffs. Look, I know Butler has, I think, the world of Thad Mata, and I'm convinced that he's going to figure out a way to at least steady the ship and right the ship. But given the strength of the league, John, and looking around and just some of the observations that you just made, don't you have to be worried if you're a Butler fan about their trajectory in that league and how difficult it's going to be to climb back up again? Yeah, you've got to be concerned. You have to be concerned if you're a Butler fan because I don't know who you're replacing. It's it's like anything, folks. It's like if you're a Colts fan when, when maybe they were finishing in third or, you know, uh, like it, it, here's the thing. You you don't just make – if you're going to make a move up, other teams have to move down. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to be replacing those teams. And right now, but, I mean, this past year, Butler didn't have the talent that other teams in the Big East had. And that's where it starts. When coaches say, well, you got to have great players, where that really gets felt is, like, you've got to – You've got to be able to have talent that can consistently compete night to night in this league. And this past year, Butler didn't have that. If they were beating teams, it was more surprising than it was expected. And it was O'Hinkle magic. I mean, they couldn't win on the road. They really struggled away from Hinkle. And then even inside Hinkle, they just, I mean, look what UConn has done to them since coming back to the Big East. They've really manhandled them. Yeah. So, it, that, that's where it's got to start. Like, I, I don't know what exactly it is, but Fab Martin and his staff have got to just get their hands dirty and start bringing in some players because it, the talent the past couple of years hasn't been up to stuff to be able to win in your league. And that's a problem. I think Fab Mata can coach. I think he had a team this year that didn't fit his identity. But now in the era of the transfer portal and in the era where you can quickly turn a roster – Gone are the days, there. Gone are the days where you could say it's going to be three or four years, and then we'll we'll have this thing really turning. Yeah. No, you can turn this quickly, but you've got to get to work and do it on the recruiting trailway. No doubt, John Fanta joins us, Fox Sports Field of sixty eight. Uh, here in Big Ten country, John, I wanted to get your national perspective here. Um, I'll be honest. I don't like using a single elimination random tournament to make broad statements about conference strength. Like, you know, Miami is good. The ACC wasn't good. It wasn't a good league this year. Miami doesn't change that to me. The Big 12 was a great league. They don't have a, a Final Four participant this year, and that, that doesn't change that for me. But is it an issue, and, and why, I guess, from your observation, has it been such an issue that the Big Ten – 
continually sends seven, eight, nine teams to this tournament, and they just not only are they not winning it, like at least in the two thousands, you had Illinois, you had IU make a run, you know, you had right. teams Michigan State in '09, you had teams make the title game or make Final Fours, and they're not even doing that anymore. Why is that? Do you think? A couple things. Number one, a predictable playing style. So let's start with Purdue. Purdue was the team that you said by the end of the year, you know what, we'll allow the floor to shrink. We'll allow Mr. Eady to have his 30 points if it means we're cutting off everybody on the perimeter. Because if we do that, we can find a way to win. We'll make enough threes. We will trade your twos if it means we're getting threes. So that's the big thing. And the same could be felt with Indiana. Indiana's perimeter play was never consistent this past season. Now, losing Xavier Johnson certainly tough. Jalen Huchifino had a great year. But, like, it was inconsistent. It was inconsistent, and they, they had a nice regular season, but they were never consistent from a guard play perspective. This is a guard's game. And because of the way college basketball is structured now, there are some really, really good guards at the mid-major level that could play and that could control a game. You could have all the big men that you want, but it doesn't matter if you don't have the guard play to initiate, to dictate the way the game's being played. I think also the Big Ten's level of physicality in their regular season. Then when these teams get to the tournament, there's two things. Number one, the game gets officiated differently. What wasn't a foul in the Big Ten is now a foul in the NCAA tournament. And two, you're worn down. These teams are worn down. They're not playing their best. Now, I'm not here to say, like, I'm not coming on your air and saying that the Big Ten is some crummy league and isn't good enough. Like, no, it's a good league. The Big Ten's a deep league. I stack it steps up against just about anybody most years. It is a quality conference. Stylistically, these teams don't play a way that's sustainable to win four, five, six games in a row in the NCAA tournament. Something systematically has to change. You can both say that the Big Ten is a quality league and that it's not just coincidence that this is happening every single year where these teams are bowing out early. Under no circumstances should Purdue be losing to FDU. Under no circumstances should Indiana basically get run off the floor by Miami. It wasn't close. It wasn't close. These teams have to figure some certain things out because right now, Illinois against Arkansas, not a game, not a game. Something systematically has to change. It's why Penn State actually had a great year, won a tournament game for the first time in a couple decades. You know why? Micah Shrewsbury was playing chess while everybody else was playing checkers. And his style ended up lending itself to being unique and different in the Big Ten. Same thing could be said of Northwestern. Northwestern played a little bit unorthodox, a little bit different, and it led them to winning. You gotta try some different things. You gotta play some different ways. Right now, it's like the Big Ten has this collective brand of basketball, but it's not proving to be successful in the NCAA tournament. John Fanta's brand proving to be successful everywhere you see him. Fox Sports Field of 68. You can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Fanta. A must follow, especially this week for Final Four. Have a great time down in Houston. Appreciate your time, my man. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Derek. Anytime. Great to be with you. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, 
and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Colts looking to get moving this offseason in a variety of different ways as they try to stop this franchise from sliding. You know, for many years we were saying, well, the Colts need to shift it out of neutral because they're just spinning their tires. Last year, the car caught on fire. Trying to extinguish those flames is Jim Irsay. He's down there in Arizona in the owners' meetings, and we're talking quarterbacks, we're talking draft, and who better to have on to discuss those things than Zach Hicks. He's the Colts analyst for the Horseshoe Huddle, part of the SI.com family, co-host of Locked On Colts as well, a must-follow for you Colts fans, and he joins us right now on the guest line. Zach, did we fix the Indy, Indiana thing familiar today when you're pointing out guys and where they're from? I just want to make sure that somebody helped you with that. Yeah, somebody helped me. You know, I'm, I'm look, guys. I'm not native. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the difference between Indy and Indiana. I thought I was just shorthanding it, but no, I was I was politely corrected by quite a few people that Indy is in is Indianapolis, yep. and then Indiana is Indiana. Like, don't don't mix those two. So I was politely corrected. I'm glad that it was politely corrected, though. Or you could say Hoosier, but then the Purdue people get upset. So yeah, you just go with Indiana native for Indiana, and then Indy. I'm, I'm glad that everybody was kind and gentle about pointing that out and and steering you in the right direction. Um, I'm sure you've been inundated just like we all have with this Lamar Jackson stuff. Uh, Give me kind of your thoughts on him. Let's assume that he's in a situation with a competent head coach and and team infrastructure. Is he, in your eyes, a a franchise-altering type player at quarterback? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many league MVPs are there in the history of the sport? You know, one per year that we've had, like, and he was one of them at such a young age. Uh, just a phenomenal football player. Uh, just adds so much. Like, he's just such a dynamic player running the football, you know, and I know the whole league is based around throwing the ball, but when you have a quarterback that is that dynamic in uh, his ability to get out of the pocket and his ability to run and just create like you get so much in terms of negating sacks, so much in terms of creating big plays when stuff isn't actually there for a lot of quarterbacks. Like he makes your offense so much better and he raises the entire floor of your team having a quarterback like that. And then when it's all clicking, like we saw a couple years ago, he's a league MVP caliber guy. Uh, you know, we, we've seen some issues obviously the last couple of years with injuries and, and just the lack of cohesion there with the Ravens. But yeah, this is a franchise altering quarterback and, you know, I'm sure we're going to get to a question here in a second about if we think the Colts could actually do it. But just aside from that, man, Lamar Jackson is so fun to watch. Such a great quarterback. And if he were to somehow be an indie, like, I'd be a huge fan. I'd, I'd go get a jersey right now. Like, that, that's a great player. It's a franchise quarterback. And, and, yeah, the Colts would be lucky to get a player like that. I think there's just a difference. With that question, Zach, it's, there's a big difference between should they do it, which is – Right, probably yes, uh, given his skill set, and will they do it? Which is uh, all signs seem, at least to me, to point to no. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, again, we're talking uh, a record-breaking deal, and Jim Irsay even came out last night and and kind of shot down a lot of the Lamar Jackson stuff when he was at the owners' meeting. You know, he said how bad he's been wanting a rookie quarterback for the last couple of years, ever since the Philip Rivers season. How bad he wanted a rookie quarterback. Uh, and then he also spoke against uh, fully guaranteed deals. Now, we don't know the exact contract negotiations between Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, so we don't know if he actually is seeking a fully guaranteed deal, but it does seem like he is. 
Uh, again, I don't want to speculate too much there, but if he is fully wanting a guaranteed deal, Jim Mercer literally just said last night, you know, he's kind of against it and he thinks it would be bad for the sport. So there's a lot of moving parts here. I mean, on top of that, you know, the Colts could clear up all this space, offer him the contract that he wants, and then the Ravens could say, no, we're going to match it. And you just cleared up a ton of space and pushed money into void years and, and hurt your, you know, long-term potential of your team for a guy that's not even going to come to you. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a really, really tricky situation, uh, and I've heard a lot of people say, oh, trade for his rights first. I mean, then that would be way more than the two first-round picks we're looking at because if you're the Ravens, I mean, you're getting two first-round picks regardless if a trade happens. So if you're trading for his rights before making a tra- contract offer, you're probably giving up more than those two first-round picks because the Ravens already have that minimum. You know, so. Yeah. It's a tough negotiation, and I understand why some teams are hesitant of it. Uh, personally, again, I think this is a franchise-altering guy, and I would go do it, but I don't see the Colts or, or really any team trying to make this happen. Like, it's just – it's a tough situation. I think if I had to put money down, I'd say that things kind of rekindle with the Ravens and him before he ends up playing somewhere else. We're talking with Zach Hicks, Colts analyst, Horseshoe Huddle, Locked On Colts podcast as well that he hosts with Jake Arthur. He joins us on the guest line. It's the ride with JMV, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. I want you to do a, uh, because you're a great film guy and you're great at breaking these quarterbacks down, I'd like you to do a best thing, worst thing with the two quarterbacks who will likely be talked about at, in, in outside of the top two where the Colts are picking it for, and that's Anthony Richardson and Will Levis. So, What's the best thing about Will Levis, and then what's the worst thing from what you've seen about Will Levis? Yeah, so again, the first thing when you look at Will Levis, you think of the arm talent, you think of the traits and the upside, but honestly, I will say the best thing about Will Levis is the personality and the person, because we have seen so many guys like him. You know, the big, strong arm quarterback that wasn't super productive, but, you know, did a little bit there in college. We've seen so many of those guys over the years. We've seen Drew Locke. We've seen Mitch Trubisky. We've seen Zach Wilson. I think what separates Will Levis from those guys is who he is. You know, I, I again, I don't know this guy personally, but you could see in all the interviews, you can see in the way that teammates talk about him. It's, it's just a different feel than a Mitch Trubisky or a Zach Wilson. You know, these, these guys are ride or die for, the, for him. He's been a team captain there at Kentucky the last couple of years. Uh, he's a guy who worked on his mechanics and has that ability to grow and get better. And I just think that's what really separates him from the cliched bust that look like him, you know, in the past. And, and it even separates him from the Carson Wentz comparison. You know, I, I know a lot of people want to throw the Carson Wentz thing, but I think that really separates him. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's the best trait about him. And if we're talking worst trait, it's just that he's, he's a guy who never put it together. And he's going to be 24 on, on the opening day of the season. I've had mm-hmm. one guy come at me a lot saying that he's 23 right now. He's going to be 24 <laughs> on day one. Okay, guys, he's going to be 24 on week one of the NFL season this next year. And he's still a guy who has a ways to go in terms of his footwork, in terms of decision-making, in terms of just overall cohesion and offense. And that's concerning because if you're taking a guy top five and he's 24 years old or going to be 24 years old, you want him to be ready. And I do think he's ready to play day one, but I don't think he's ready to thrive day one. Uh, And most rookies aren't, but I I think he's further back than some other guys. So, yeah, I would say the best thing about him is just that personality and who he is and the ability to grow. Uh, Worst thing about him is, you know, there's still more to go with him, and he's already going to be 24 years old. Let's do the same with Richardson. Best thing and worst thing about the Florida quarterback. Yeah, so so best thing about him, and honestly, I'm going to say it's it's just the willing – it's just – not the willingness, it's the ability to adjust to pressure. 
you know, and, and we see this with so many young guys who have poor completion percentage or poor accuracy. It's, you know, the second that pressure closes in, their feet get rattled. They're, they're running all over the place. They're throwing balls out of bounds. And I'm not saying Richardson doesn't have that sometimes on film, but when you watch him on film, this is a guy who moves really well in the pocket, who's nearly impossible to bring down in the pocket because of how big and strong he is. And then when he gets outside of the pocket, he can create uh, with extra yards with his feet. He can get out of there and, and throw the ball on the run and make some good passes. So this is a guy where pressure doesn't really phase him for such a young player who just doesn't have much field experience. Uh, so I think that's a really impressive thing, and that's something you really build upon with a young player. Uh, but when you go to the negatives, you know, I honestly don't even know if this is really him. It's just kind of the, the fallacy with everyone looking at him is the fallacy that if you can get better doesn't mean you're going to get better. You know, this is a guy where you're looking at the potential. You're looking at what he can be, but that doesn't mean that's what he's going to be. Because as of right now, like if you're going on the scale of one to 10, like he's like a two or a three in terms of what he currently is in the football field. There's a lot of great things about his game and what he can be, but you can't get sucked into that like, oh, he's absolutely going to get better. He's always going to get up to this top level. He's a guy where he needs a lot of time, needs a lot of work, needs a lot of things to go right. But that potential is great. So, yeah, again, best thing is this is a young kid who reacts to pressure really well uh, for his age and for his experience. Uh, But the biggest concern is, look, right now he's not close to where you want him to be. And you can't make that that just fallacy of thinking he's definitely going to get there one day. There seems to be with Richardson this narrative that he's total boomer bust, and you know I think we'd all agree that the, the, on the boom part. But you have seemed to buck against the fact that uh, you know his floor is as low as some. I, I think fans just default that way, Zach, because generally speaking, with the elite level athletes. And you're banking on those elite traits. Those are the guys that have a, a really low floor. But you don't think that's the case with Richardson? No. I, I, honestly, if you look at the modern trend of NFL football, look at these mobile quarterbacks these last couple of years. And, yes, their first couple of seasons, you might get like a 53% passer or a 58% passer. I mean, Jalen Hurts, his first year as a starter in 2021, uh, Josh Allen back in 2018, Lamar Jackson uh, in 2018, the second half when he played, you know, these were not efficient passers. These were not guys who came in and lit the world on fire. But I think what a lot of people forget is what these guys add in the rushing game raises your floor so much in an offense because you're not only looking at these guys where it's like, okay, he threw for 3,000 yards, 14 touchdowns and 10 picks, you know, oh, this is a horrible season. Oh, but on top of that, he ran for 800 yards and he ran for three touchdowns or ran for four touchdowns, whatever it is. So then you're looking at the end of the season. It's like, oh, nearly 4,000 total yards on offense, over 20 touchdowns to 10 picks. Like we can build on that. Whereas if you're looking at a pocket passer, you know, what you get passing wise is what you're going to get at the end of the day. Uh, Mobile passers like Anthony Richardson raise the floor so much because they're just going to keep creating yardage even when they're not as effective as passers. So, yeah, I do push back a little bit on the floor is so low because at the end of the day, if you have a good offense coordinator or a good play caller like a Shane Steichen who knows how to work these guys in the run game, you're going to always have a higher floor for your offense than someone with an ineffective pocket passing quarterback. I know you kind of alluded to this about you know not being ready on day one. I really don't love the idea of somebody sitting, but with Levis or Richardson, in your opinion, do they need to sit to start off and, and have it be Minshew to start? Or are you willing and, and could they be ready to roll with them uh, coming up week one? 
Yeah, I think Will Levis, you have to throw him out there week one. I mean, again, we're talking about a guy who's going to be 24, only a couple years younger than Gardner Minshew. Uh, and, and he's a guy who's been in two NFL offenses, you know, two fairly normalized NFL offenses. Yes, they were the bare bones versions of, of NFL offenses, but they were like, he knows the terminology. He knows what needs to be done. Uh, and he knows what reads to make, uh, even if he wasn't consistently making them in college, he knows what has to be done where Anthony Richardson. Yeah. I could be talked into him sitting. And, and I think, you know, that might do him some, some favors with his poor mechanics right now with his ability. But I mean, I think if, if Anthony Richardson, they throw him out there day one, again, you're going to get such a, a dominant rushing threat at the quarterback position where your offense is still going to be kind of effective. Now, it might look like Josh Allen in 2018 where you're completing 52% of your passes, but he might run for six, seven, 800 yards and, and really add something to your offense that way. So yeah, I could see either way. Um, I probably wouldn't bench Will Levis or I wouldn't have Will Levis on the bench because I just think a guy with his age and his experience, it's time for him to start. Cultures seem like they're being patient here. Uh, and uh, look, this is uh, independent of the Lamar discussion. But they've said that they want to kind of slow build this thing back up. Does that indicate to you that maybe they've learned the right lessons from the failures of the past two seasons, or is that not the right approach to take? Man, I hope so, because they were – I mean, it's like they were just barely treading water for two seasons, and I think your your analogy at the top of the show was, was just great there about how the car caught on fire this past season. I mean, it it really did, like – it's like treading water for two years and all of a sudden you're just drowning. Like that's what they were this past year. And I'm glad they didn't take that as a sign to, Oh, it's on the quarterback again. Oh, it was all Matt Ryan. Don't worry. Once we get in Gardner Minshew and Shane Steichen, we'll be able to get back to our seven, eight, nine wins and, and barely squeak into the playoffs and, and lose a tight one in round one and go pat ourselves in the back after the season. You know, I'm glad that they strayed away from that and they're finally going, look, Let's move Stephon Gilmore. You know, that's a veteran who's not going to be back after this next season. Let's move on from him, move on from Yannick Ngakwe, not give out big contracts to Bobby Okereke and stuff like that. Like, let's reset a little bit here. Let's get in some longer-term deals with, you know, Abukum and, and Matt Gay and stuff like that and get those positions figured out. And let's just build around whatever we're going to do at quarterback here. You know, whether that's trading up to one, which ultimately didn't happen, or whether that's taking a guy at four or taking a guy at three, like, I'm glad that they're finally saying, look, we're not only playing for 2024. We're also playing for 2024, 2025, and 2026, and and past that. You know, it's not just one year fix it and and hope that that saves our job for another season. Uh, So if that's truly what's going on, and they are really building between, you know, like before this this young quarterback they're about to take, I'm all for it. Like, it it was finally time to do it. It was time to do it back in 2020 after Phillip Rivers, and it's 100% time to do it right now. I mean, when you sign Matt Gay, you're ready to win right now. You're ready to win right. next year, the year after. I mean, am, am I right? We talk about franchise altering at the beginning of the conversation. I guess I should have led Matt Gay, right, Zach? Oh, man, look, <laughs> if I never have to talk about a kicker again because this guy's so good, then then I'm calling it an absolute win of a signing. But until then, I'm going to I'm gonna hold myself to I, – I, I get to criticize every miss. So he better not miss. That's that's the big thing right there. I know you've got your your draft guide going right now, and also it looks like your draft prospect interviews are, are happening. So kind of give us the lay of the land here for what the next couple of weeks look like for you leading up to the draft. Yeah, it's busy. Busy bunch of uh, prospect interviews and stuff going up on the site. Uh, yeah, the draft guide releases on April 10th. So if you guys haven't got your got your draft guide yet, you can go over there. It's like Gumroad or whatever. You guys can check it out on my 
on my social media at Zach Hicks too on Twitter and stuff. And yeah, that's pretty much all it is. It's all draft right now. I don't think the Colts are going to do too much uh, free agency wise. So it's all about, you know, reaching out to like the two connections I have and trying to figure out who the Colts might go. (laughs) That's the biggest thing right now. I got Alec Pierce last year and now I'm the draft insider. There you go. Yeah. All you got to do is hit one and then there, there it is at Zach Hicks two on Twitter, si.com slash NFL slash Colts for the horseshoe huddle and the locked on Colts podcast with daily uh, updates, daily episodes with uh, Jake Arthur and Zach as well. Appreciate it, my man. And we'll get back into that uh, Twitter DM inner circle. Great. Thanks, man. (laughs) Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. You can follow our next guest on Twitter as well at Greg Rakestraw. He is the vice president of the IC Sports Radio Network, uh, IC Sports Network, I should say, Colts Radio Network as well. Uh, which you hear him on. You hear him on just about everything. Did coverage of the IHSA State Basketball Finals as well over the weekend. And uh, I, remind me, Rake, you have a much better memory than I do. You have like a photographic memory. I feel like I, I filled in for JMV around this time last year, did I not, when he was on vacation and you were supposed to be on vacation. And I told you, hey, man, aren't you on vacation? Like, are you sure you want to do the show today? Well, I always am excited to talk to you. But yes, technically I'm on vacation. But of all the times that I might have a little bit of disappointment in my voice in talking to you and not JMV, uh, I'm in Terre Haute today. I'm about to call an Indiana State University baseball game as the trees host the Boilermakers. And I'm probably sure you don't have the same level of Terre Haute stories about Indiana State baseball that John would be dropping right now. He'd be interrupting my flow of conversation, <laughs> talking about his days of doing Indiana State baseball as a student. Yeah, I don't really have any Terre Haute stories outside of uh, anything involving the old um, training camp site. That's about the, the the amount of time that I've spent in Terre Haute have all been back in the day when the Colts were there. But think about this when that was the case. Our food options then were Burger King, McDonald's, and if you want to get out of the car, you go to Arby's. That was all the way at Exit 11 back in the day. Now they got like a Starbucks there yeah. and a mall. It's crazy because uh, the, 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 the choices were a bit more Spartan uh, when I was going there like on a daily basis from 2001 through 2008. Yeah, it's grown a lot, and it's good to see. I mean, I went to Fort Wayne a couple of uh, months ago for the first time since, I don't know, like the late 2000s, and I was like, wow, Fort Wayne's actually pretty cool. Like, there's stuff to do, and <laughs> there's stuff going on. So I'm, I'm happy to hear it about Terre Haute as well. I, you know, I always try to root for South Bend, Evansville, all the Indiana cities. Well, and this is the sport that Indiana State is most nationally prominent at, is baseball as well. They have the fourth toughest schedule in the country to this point. Wow. And they are rated 27th in the RPI. And yes, there is an RPI for baseball as well. So Indiana State, as I'm literally reading the signage uh, here in the building, they have made the NCAA tournament for baseball 11 times. And uh, they're 3-0 in the league playing into today's game against the Boilermakers. Well, you're not far from where you sit right now, from the old Colts training camp side. Back in those days, we never had to worry about who the quarterback was the next year or all of the offseason question marks because it was just, yep, they're going to roll out of bed, win 12, 13, 14 games, whatever else. Those are the, kind of the good old days. But 
not so much good old days with where we sit today. Um, obviously, you're paying attention, as we all are, to this Lamar Jackson situation. Uh, do you think ultimately, Greg, that the Colts will seriously pursue him? I don't think so. Just because of the way that the Ravens tagged him, it's not like you can negotiate a lower uh, you know, price point. You know, there's, there's this phraseology that we have in NBA called a sign-and-trade where you've got a little bit more of a window to kind of do things. It's not really with the level of franchise tag that the Ravens, and understandably so, sign Lamar to to try to protect their interest or protect their investment in this situation. And because of, of the couple of first-round picks and because of the rightful question marks, for as talented as Lamar is, for the rightful question marks about the physical toll he has taken as a running quarterback these last handful of years, I just the, the, the Colts can talk about it. I don't actually see them pulling the trigger on the move. Yeah, and what they've done so far just doesn't strike me as a team that is preparing for him to be their quarterback, right? Because no. would, would you trade Gilmore if you're bringing in Lamar Jackson? Would you – would you do some of the things roster-wise? Like, wouldn't you have already probably let go of Kenny Moore and Ryan Kelly before the roster bonuses to free up that cap space, knowing that that extension was going to have to come with it? Correct. And what tells me that you are planning to play a quarterback on a rookie wage scale for the next five years. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat with you. Uh, strikes me as a bit of a an interest, certainly an interesting, but a little bit of an odd quarterback class if, if the Colts are going to go down that road because – while everyone agrees on all four of the top guys and potentially having high-level starter potential, there doesn't seem to be a lot of people who believe any of those guys project as a, a superstar. Um, you know, With where you are and what you know about those four guys, let, let's t- say Levis and Richardson because it looks like the other two and Stroud and, and, uh, and Young are going to go one-two. Who do you think might fit more for what the Colts want to do? You know, to me, kind of the uncertainty of the quarterback class, it is amplified by just how big of a sure thing the Colts had the last two times they were in a similar position. You know, people weren't questioning Peyton Manning. People weren't questioning Andrew Luck. And, yes, people feel good about Stroud and Young. Uh, people feel that there are there's potential for guys like Levis and Richardson. But, it's again, it's, it's why I was not opposed to the Colts Moving up to number one, even if there wasn't a definitive guy, hey, this is this is the surefire thing here, because just your options were so much better if you had moved ahead of everybody and got the one where you could pick your guy or you could kind of negotiate what that price tag is. Now you know the best that you're going to do is picking the third best guy. Because the Panthers have made their move. The Texans aren't trading with you. And so in all likelihood, it's, who do you like more? Is it Levis or Richardson? And again, you see potential there, but are those guys sure things? Absolutely not. And so part of me says that you can get the three and get Richardson. If he's got the higher ceiling, go get him. Especially if you've got Gardner Minshew at least for the next year or two to help kind of solidify that spot. Levis, I'm, I'm, I'm not as high on him. Colt potentially could get him at four. Colt may have to go to three to get him. Again, you, you see potential there, but you're right. It's not exactly a surefire sort of thing. We're talking with Greg Rakestraw, ISC Sports Network, and many other outlets here on the ride with JMV. Derek Schultz filling in 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Let's talk uh, what you just saw this past weekend. Great crowd, great atmosphere uh, for all the games, but especially the 4A game between Ben Davis and Kokomo. And, you know, 33-0, and Greg, um, given the schedule that they played, 
And I actually think people look at this maybe as a knock when you say, well, Ben Davis this year didn't have a high-level college player. Like, you didn't have – obviously, you didn't have, like, an Odin or a Conley, but you didn't have a Justin Cage or, or a, a Jordan Holes, you know, like we've seen with some of these undefeated state champions. But I, I think that's actually – is it not the ultimate compliment to pay to Ben Davis is that as far as some of their parts teams, this is about as good as I can remember in, in following Indiana high school basketball. Correct. Uh, and and the, the most apt comparison is, is to Warren Central five years ago, who went 32-0, and it's at the previous mark for most wins in an unbeaten Indiana high school boys basketball season. That Warren Central team ends up not having a single Division One player on the team. Uh, David Bell was the Division One athlete, obviously now with the Cleveland Browns in the National Football League. But Jacoby Robinson, Jesse Bingham still playing at UND. Uh, Dean Tate played at Purdue Northwest. Uh, Malik Stanley, who was kind of a star the following year, uh, ended up going to the University of Tampa. Those were primarily Division II and NAI-level kids that played on that team. That's not the case of this Ben Davis team. You know, Zane Dowdy at Valpo is probably the highest-end recruit of the senior class. Sheridan Sharp going to Nickel State. Guys like Butler and Arnold going to play Division II. I think there's probably a higher ceiling for the sophomore and juniors of that group in Mark Zachary, Mark White, K.J. Windham, who are all getting Division I looks. And again, Zachary has to make the choice, a la David Bell, am I playing football at the next level? Am I playing basketball at the next level? He's just a sophomore, so he's got time to try to figure that stuff out. This is as good of a team as there has been in Indiana high school basketball in a long time. To me, we're talking about the best teams to ever do it. You're talking about 69 Washington, George McGinnis, Steve Downing. Mm -hmm. You're talking about 71 East Chicago with Junior Bridgman, Pete Turgovich, Tim Stoddard. You're talking about 85 Marion with the younger end of of Jay Edwards and and Lyndon Jones, along with Derek Keyes, Kyle Persinger, uh, players like that. Uh, you're talking about Odin and Conley of 03-04 fame. You know, they had an unbeaten season in there, too. I think Ben Davis deserves to be in the conversation. How you compare those teams because of how different athletes are and how differently the game is played, I have no earthly idea as to how to separate those guys. But Ben Davis deserves to be in that conversation because of how good they were this year and, again, how ridiculous their schedule was. Here's a couple of quick notes I will share with you. Of their 33 wins, 25 came against teams in the top 64 of the Sagarin ratings, and they own victories over in those same computer polls. They own victories over the teams ranked two through nine. All of them, Ben Davis, what they just accomplished is one of the greatest seasons in the history of Indiana high school basketball, period. Yeah, it was incredible. And an incredible atmosphere. I wasn't there, but I, I saw, you know, Jeff Rabjohns tweeted a pregame video before tip and to see it full to the rafters. Uh, this was pretty much the first quote-unquote normal season post-COVID, right? Because you still had some of the crowd restrictions, certainly in 21, and then even into well into the, the winter of, of 22. And we're constantly asking about, you know, the health of Indiana high school basketball and well, this is what it used to be and this is what it is now. But when I look at something like that, Greg, with that, the attention about that game and just from being around those high school gyms, especially this year, um, I'd assume you diagnose it as pretty darn good with where we are. It's fantastic. Um, and, and what you are seeing is that, you know, if, if a team is great, people will show up to watch them. If a player is great, 
a la Flory Badunga, people will show up to watch him. Um, attendance is on an uptick period. I think the whole COVID pandemic made people appreciate local sports and high school sports all the more. Um, but then at the, at the same time, um, it's, 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 again, I think it's on the uptick, but I also don't think you can just roll out the ball people automatically show up. People will go if they believe what they're seeing is something special. In Ben Davis, you had something special. In Kokomo, you had something special. In Northwood, you had something special. In Northwood, who won the 3A game, they were clearly the best team outside of 4A for the entirety of the year, which is why I was not at all surprised that we saw more than 16,000 people for the night session at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Joined by Greg Regstraw. A couple of things before I cut you loose for Trees Baseball here. Uh, I was fascinated by this, and I was like, well, when I found out that James said you were going to be on the show, I was like, i got to ask Rake about this. Given your time at IUPUI, you've been around mid-major basketball and a lot of low-mid-major basketball as well. And I'm not talking about, like, the MAC or the Valley. Like, that's higher mid-major. Those teams win NCAA tournament games and, and have been doing so for many years. But have you noticed a discernible difference between the level of play – maybe this year or the past couple of years of low mids? Like, are, are the Summit League, the Southern League, the Ivy level teams, are they are they better now? And is that why we're seeing what we've been seeing in, the, in this NCAA tournament especially? You know, I, I think what it is, it, it is easier to collect talent. Potentially from an NIL standpoint, but I don't think they were making big money at Florida Atlantic going into the season. I, I, I have no idea if you're allowed to do stuff like that in the Ivy League but it's, we're in this really weird spot. And let me tell you about a team that should have been good that wasn't, but as for a reason as to why you've got these lower majors that can have these deeper tournament runs. Purdue-Fort Wayne returned virtually everybody, and I think their average age of their starting five was over 23 or 24. Wow. Like, if you, if you had the combined number of years of, in college – of their starting five, I think that number was like 23 years of college basketball experience going counting this year. And so because you can accumulate so many seniors um, and because guys, because of the COVID free pass and more liberal transfer and redshirt rules, you know, we've got sixth and seventh year kids playing college basketball. So I was liking it. Like the only the only example I could think of that was like it, even though these true freshmen couldn't play back then, was almost like after the war. You know, you'd have like 24 and 25 year old guys playing against 19 and 20 year old guys. Yeah. There's only a one or two year window where they should be allowed to continue. And so maybe it's not surprising that some stranger things have happened. But I, I will say this, Derek, I am so happy that San Diego State's in the Final Four or Florida Atlantic's in the Final Four. I was rooting for total chaos. I wanted no Power Five or throw throw the Biggies in there too, Power Six conference teams, because the system is so stacked against teams from the Valley or Mid-American or Horizon League or Summit League, whatever the case may be, because the big boys have tried to completely eliminate the phrase mid-major from college basketball. Those teams don't go play the mid-sized guys, the little guys on their floor. And the I think 27 of the 36, you know, uh, non-automatic bids went to Power Five or Power Six member schools. And yet here we are with a Mountain West team and a team in Conference USA who's going to be in the American Athletic Conference next year. One of those teams playing in the national championship game. 
So even with everything stacked against them, programs are finding a way to be successful. And I love that because I've always got a special place in my heart because of my days at IUPUI and the friends that I have, like, say, John Sherman at Indiana State University. I want to see those guys and those programs be successful knowing the system is almost rigged against them, and yet they still find a way. Yeah, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Carmel or, like, Westfield, they have better athletics facilities than Fairleigh Dickinson. Like, I, I don't even think that's hyperbole to say. I mean, that, that's how low level of college basketball this is. Um, and, and to see those teams have success. I, I agree. Look, I, I didn't like that FDU beat Purdue. Um, but to, to, that whole thing, it, it's what we're enamored with and what is so endearing about the NCAA tournament to begin with. Correct. And again, I am, I'm very curious as to what happens with Dusty May going forward. Me too. You know, does he stick it out of Florida Atlantic? Does he make them more of a power? Um, I, I think the level of school that he can go coach at has changed dramatically in the course of the next couple of weeks. Like a lot of people are going to say, hey, there's an IU guy that's the AD at Penn State. He just lost Micah Shrewsbury. Dusty May's his next guy. Um, probably more team, people watched his teams in Boca Raton than people watched Micah Shrewsbury's teams in State College. And so I'm curious as to what the next step is going to be for him a few days from now. At Greg Rakestraw on Twitter, Trees Baseball this afternoon, ISCSportsNetwork.com. You can also download the ISC app on mobile, Roku, Apple TV, Fire TV, among other platforms. Uh, enjoy this quote-unquote vacation, my man, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, pal.